Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So this morning's reading is 1 Samuel chapter 27, page 300 of the Church Bibles. But David thought to himself, One of these days I shall be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favour in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns, that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. David lived in Philistine territory for a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, these peoples had lived in the land extending to Shur and Egypt. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels, and clothes. Then he returned to Achish. When Achish asked, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jeremiel, or against the Negev of the Kenites. He did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice, as long as he lived in Philistine territory. Achish trusted David and said to himself, He has become so odious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant forever. Richard, uh, thank you. Do keep your Bibles open at that reading, page 300, 1 Samuel 27. Uh, A few months ago when Paul asked me if I would be willing to um, preach a few sermons from the series in 1 Samuel, I was happy to. Until I came to discover what I was actually meant to preach on, I realized why Paul handed over the series at this point. Uh, This is a tough chapter with tough things to teach us. Let's pray for God's help as we turn to it now. Father, we thank you that your word is true and without lie. We thank you that it does not deceive us. We thank you that through it we understand who you are and we understand our own hearts. And so we pray this morning that you would help us to see and to understand, and to be changed. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. Amen. I guess most of us know what it's like to live under pressure in some form or another. Uh, Perhaps we experience pressure at work with a deadline looming. Uh, Maybe it's at home. We experience pressure with just too many demands on our time all at once. Perhaps there's pressure from the wider family with various expectations being placed on us. 
Perhaps it's the kind of pressure we feel when we wait for the phone call from the consultant to tell us what the results uh, uh, show. Most of us live under pressure in some way or another. Normally we find ways to cope with pressure. We find ways to keep going, putting on a brave face. But sometimes living under pressure, uh, the wrong kind of pressure perhaps, and things that we normally are able to keep hidden about ourselves and our hearts, well, these things come out under pressure. You see, pressure can expose our hearts. I discovered this uh, yesterday, uh, driving around the the, the car park at Meadowhall uh, on a wet Saturday in June. There were hundreds of cars all circling around looking for one space somewhere. Um, And uh, normally I I think I'm a kind of guy who's relaxed and calm. But uh, if you've been sitting in the back seat of the scamming car, you've observed a very different uh, mood in the car as we drove around Meadowhall. You see, uh, pressure can reveal things going on in our hearts. Or um, uh, being a man, there's a different kind of pressure, um, the pressure of being hungry. Uh, and uh, Lorna recently uh, pointed out to me a poster she had come across which said this, I'm sorry for the things I said when I was hungry. Uh, a different kind of pressure. I'm not sure if you're trying to tell me something at that point. Um, of course, there are things in life which exert a far greater pressure on us than mild hunger or meadow hole. And this morning, we're going to see a man living under pressure, and it is extreme. It is prolonged pressure. And this morning, as we see this man give in to pressure, we get a glimpse into his heart. And as we get a glimpse into his heart, we get a glimpse into every human heart. We're also going to think about another man who experienced the most severe pressure, and his heart too was exposed to the world. And yet this other man did not give in to pressure. David is the man under pressure in our chapter in 1 Samuel 27. If you've been with us over the last few weeks as we looked at 1 Samuel, then you'll know there's no doubt the kind of pressure David is under. In fact, verse 1 from our reading sums it up nicely. But David thought to himself, one of these days I shall be destroyed by the hand of Saul. There's the pressure. Saul is trying to kill David. And Saul isn't just any man. He's he's the king of Israel. And he has thousands of men at his disposal hunting David down. And Saul is a man who can't be trusted. So twice David spares Saul's life. Twice Saul seems to be sorry But then twice, Saul changes his mind and goes out hunting for David again. Saul is an enemy who is unpredictable, who lies. And so David is a man under pressure. He is on the run, hiding in caves and desert. He has no place to call home, nowhere to settle down. And it's been going on for a long time. This is sustained, severe pressure. And there's more. David has 600 men, plus their wives and children, who rely on him for provision And David has nowhere to call home. What will David do to provide for these men he has care for? And then there's the people of Israel themselves. Uh, The very people that David had been anointed king over. The very people David was trying to protect from the enemies. These people were betraying David twice. They had betrayed him into Saul's hands. 
So where could David go? Where could he settle down? Where could he call home? He is a man under extreme pressure. And so when David says, verse one, one of these days I shall be destroyed by the hand of Saul, he isn't being dramatic or alarmist. No, this is a clear and present danger for David. So what will David do under this pressure? Well, the rest of our chapter tells us the answer. It's a great read. It's gripping. uh, It's scary. But as we read through the details of actually what is quite a confusing chapter, questions start to emerge. They bubble to the surface about what David is up to. What is he doing? Uh, The the narrator gives us uh, no interpretation. There is no prophet who speaks God's word to us to explain how to understand the times. It is a confusing chapter. And yet I think as we look at the details this morning, we see two moments which give the game away. There are two moments when the narrator tells us what David is thinking, tells us what is going on in his heart. We saw the first moment in verse one when we read that David thought to himself. We get a snapshot of what he's thinking throughout this chapter. The second moment comes later on in verse 11, where we read again partly through the verse, for he, David, thought, and we find out what he is thinking. So two key moments when when the the narrator reveals what is happening in this man's heart under pressure. And as we look at David, uh, we understand uh, what is going on, I think, in this chapter. So as we look at this man under pressure, there are two key moments, two revelations about his heart. The first is there in verse 1. Verse 1 continues. David says this. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. Now, on one level, this might sound like a reasonable plan. You know, there's a bit of heat, a bit of pressure in Israel. Why not pop away for a few months to a foreign land for a bit of holiday, a bit of downtime? Let things just calm down back in Israel. But if we've been reading through 1 Samuel carefully up to this point, I think verse 1 is meant to make us scream, no, not the Philistines. You see, going to the Philistines is not like going to Cornwall for a holiday. It's not ice cream in the beach and then fish and chips for tea. You see, the Philistines were the great enemies of God's people at that time. They had killed thousands of Israelites. This is Goliath country. It's more like walking into Mosul in northern Iraq, deep into IS country, wearing a Union Jack and singing, God save the Queen. And David had tried the Philistines before, back in chapter 21 of 1 Samuel. David goes down to Gath, he nearly dies, and he only managed to escape by pretending to be mad. He drools and dribbles down his beard. They think he's ridiculous, and somehow he escapes the enemy but it was this close. And here is David considering the Philistines again. And when David says in verse one, the best thing I can do, well, we know that he must be absolutely desperate if he thinks the Philistines are his best option. If this is his best shot, it's hardly any shot at all. This is a man who has become desperate under pressure. But again, we might think, well, 
okay, fair enough. If I was in David's shoes under that kind of pressure, well, then I would be desperate and I would look for any kind of solution I could. But here's the thing. God had explicitly told David that he would become king. Back in 1 Samuel 16, when Samuel anointed David, uh, we read that David uh, was destined to become king. David knew this. And for the next 11 chapters, through all the highs and lows of David's suffering, waiting for his time on the throne, David didn't waver once in his trust in God's promises to him. He was confident that one day he would um, sit on the throne after Saul. For example, even as recently as chapter 26, we see this kind of strong faith from David. David, once again, has spared Saul's life. And they're having a further conversation. In verse 24, David says this to Saul. Verse 24 of chapter 26. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. The sound of a man who trusts in God's promise to him that one day he too will sit on the throne. And yet here in chapter 27, something seems to have broken in David. He seems to be a different man. He used to be a man of, of faith who says, no, I will survive, God will keep me. Now he says in verse one, one day Saul will destroy me. The man who seemed to be so clear at one moment in his faith a man who seemed so robust and who didn't doubt, now, under this sustained and prolonged pressure, seems to be a man who is wavering and wobbling in his faith in God. In fact, in this point in time, it seems better to David to go to the Philistines than to stay and to trust in God's promises. Here is a man under severe pressure, and here is a man who is wobbling in his faith. David is the anointed one. He is the Christ. He is the one who was to lead God's people, who would protect them from all the enemies, who would be the one who would lead them in terms of trusting God's promises. And yet here is the man under great pressure who is about to give up. Verse two. So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. This is, this is sobering news. When the narrator tells us, verse 2, that David went over to Achish, he's saying more than just that David journeyed to Achish. It's, it's describing almost a change in allegiance. He's changing sides. He's going over to the sides of the Philistines. Maybe it's just a ruse. A ruse. Maybe it's just on the surface. But the narrator doesn't tell us that. We're left wondering what exactly is going on in David's heart at this point. But imagine if you were an Israelite at this time and you hear news of what's happened to David and we know they hear news because verse four tells us news gets back to Saul. They hear news that David, the anointed, has left them and gone over to the great enemy. What would you think as the people? Your leader in waiting, the one who's meant to protect you, who has won the battles for you in the past, he's left. What would you think? It is a dark moment for Israel as well as for David. So we see a man who has cracked under pressure. The pressure, if you like, has exposed to us the heart of David. 
Of course, as I mentioned at the beginning, there is another man who experienced incredible sustained pressure. There was a man who comes later on in the Bible who had no home, who moved around from place to place, who was hunted by the king of the day, a man who was betrayed by his very own people, the people he had come to protect and care for, a man of sorrows and tears, a man who knew what it was like to face death, a man who, when he thought about his own coming death in that garden, wept tears of blood. Such was the pressure he was under. And yet this other man did not waver once under this extreme pressure. He didn't just fear death. He died. And he died entrusting himself into his father's hands to rescue people who are faithless. You see, pressure exposed the heart of Jesus for the watching world to see. And in that moment of pressure, we see just how faithful, just how loving, just how confident Jesus is in the promises of his Father. And in that moment, we see that Jesus is the Christ that we need. He is the one who has come to rescue and protect his people. And only he can do it, for only he has remained faithful. David is a human just like us limited and fallen. A man, when the right kind of pressure comes, cracks and wavers. But not so the true king, Jesus. And I think as we read this account, we should just pause and rejoice that there is one who did remain faithful. We have a king who protects and loves us perfectly. But I think also as we see the human heart exposed and we see the way in which the human heart reacts under pressure, we understand a little bit more about our own hearts, do we not? I know we're not David, we're not the Christ, but we are a human like David. And when the moment is right and the pressure is right, there are moments when we too waver and wobble, don't we, in our faith? David was a man who thought it best to go to a foreign country and trust in a foreign land rather than trusting God. And there are times, are there not, in our own Christian lives when we feel as if it'd almost be better to trust in anything else or anyone else, no matter how desperate, other than the Lord. For his promises seem so hard to believe. You see, pressure has a way of making the human heart waver and wobble. We are weak in our hearts. And so as we see David running away to Gath, and we, as we understand our own hearts, how we respond to pressure. Do we not come back once again to the Lord Jesus and thank him that he has found a way to forgive us, for he himself did not run away under pressure. For when we wobble and when we doubt, we have a perfect king that we can trust. There's our first Insight that the narrator gives us into David's heart. We're told what he was thinking in this first part of the story. A man who is wobbling and doubting God's promises. Well, we move on to the, uh, the second part of the story, and this is where we unpack the second thing that David was thinking as we move towards um, the second half of the story. Uh, David goes to Gath, and um, as, as he goes, we're bound to be thinking, well, what's going to happen to David? You see, Gath is, is foreign country. Uh, the, Achish is, is, a, is a foreign king. How will David get on? How will we fare? And we should fear the worst for David. 
He's not meant to do well. But he does. In verse 5, he comes to Akish and says, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I may live there. You see, David wouldn't come to Akish saying, If I found favor, unless he thought he had found favor. And we discover he has found favor because verse 6, Akish gives David his request. And so the uncomfortable reality is, is that somehow David has found a way to blend in, and not just blend in, but find favor in this foreign country with a foreign king. And again, as an Israelite, you're thinking, what's he doing? How how does David manage it? It shouldn't happen that way. Uh, This week in the news, uh, we've heard uh, more information about Edward Snowden. If you remember Edward Snowden, he was a a guy a little while ago who leaked lots of top-secret information into the um, the public domain. Uh, He's been in trouble ever since. Uh, Some of the information that Edward Snowden leaked was unencrypted and obvious. Uh, Other bits of it were were encrypted. And he said, look, the the stuff that's encrypted is so uh, well encrypted that no one will ever break the encryption. The information is safe. But it's emerged over the weekend that actually the Chinese and the Russians have found a way to break the encryption. And that information is now also open and known. And so various people who are mentioned in the information, people who are working undercover in a foreign land, have been exposed. And they've had to leave. They've had to be repositioned. Because that's what happens. If you're undercover in a foreign land, then you're in a vulnerable place. You stand out, you have to move on once your cover is blown. And yet here is David in a foreign land and he's prospering. How is he managing it? Well, verse eight starts to tell us what he's up to. We read in verse eight. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshites and the Gerzites and the Malachites. From ancient times, these peoples had lived in the land extending to Shur and Egypt. Well, what is David doing? It's possible David is doing something that is godly and right. You see, these nations are enemies of Israel. They very probably were the same nations that were around in the promised land in the days of Joshua, when God's people first moved into the promised land. And uh, Joshua was told to wipe out all the nations, but of course Israel didn't. So it's possible to think that David here is carrying on that God-given um, plan to establish Israel once and for all in the promised land. Maybe he's doing it undercover in a a tricky spot, but yet still being faithful to God. That might be what's happening, except the narrator doesn't take the opportunity to tell us that. He leaves us wondering. And actually, as we move on in the accounts, there is good reason to think that David is doing nothing more than saving his own skin. Understand what the, um, the, the context. So um, David needs to uh, make Akish think that David's attacking Israelite towns on his raiding journeys in order to make Akish think that David has genuinely changed sides and is now loyal to him. Of course, David isn't doing that. Uh, he can't because Israel is, is his home country. And so he's attacking these other towns. And notice what David is doing, verse 9. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive. Why is David doing that? The only reason we are told is there in verse 11. And this is where we get the second insight into David's heart. Verse 11, he did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought 
they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. You see, what seems to be going on in David's mind is not some sense of noble obedience to God's plan to overthrow these nations. But rather, it seems, he is simply killing everyone to save his skin, to make his story work, and to ensure his survival in this foreign land. In other words, what David is doing here is at least questionable and at worst evil and wicked. He seems to be a man who is able to lie and to deceive and to um, give the false impression in order to keep himself intact. And we see these same character traits being played out down the line in David's reign, don't we? Think of the example of Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite, a well-known story. Uh, Why does David have Uriah killed? It's so that Uriah doesn't tell other people what David has done. The word doesn't get back and expose David. You see, David is very able to manipulate and to deceive and to kill in order to preserve himself. And I think what we see here in 1 Samuel 27 is the seeds of failure. A man who does not commit himself fully to trusting in God. And yet amazingly, as we see this man who under pressure seems to be buckling and caving in, amazingly we see that God keeps him safe. Verse 12, the the plan works. Unthinkably, Achish believes him. And so David remains safe in a foreign land. And uh, as we'll trace the story on in two weeks' time, we discover that David is able to return back into the promised land. In fact, David does become the king of Israel, just as God promised. Who would have thought it? And you see, somehow, despite the dubious decisions of David, God is still at work, still bringing about his promises, still using David, still keeping him safe. And isn't that constantly the way that scripture uh, works? Uh, Think of Abraham, the great man of faith. And yet a man who under pressure wobbled and did things he should, should not have done. Think of Egypt with his wife Sarah. He lies more than once. Think of Hagar, sleeping with her when he should not have done. Or think of Judah, later on in Genesis, who sleeps with a prostitute who turns out to be his daughter-in-law, Tamar. A terrible wicked thing to have done and yet out of that union comes a child who is the great 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 grandfather of King David you see God uses weak and broken people people who under pressure wobble he uses them to achieve his purposes and plans in the world which means I guess that God uses people like me and people like you as well In the sporting worlds, we often know the kinds of people who are in and the people who are out. Uh, People who are in in the sporting world are people who are fit and active, free of injury, people who are energetic. Of course, when an athlete becomes injured or they start to lose their energy and their, their abilities, they are pushed to the sidelines in the sporting world. And I just wonder sometimes if that's how we view the church and being part of God's family. Oh, it's great if you're... Uh, fit and able morally. 
if you're strong, you don't waver in your faith, or there's a place for you to serve and be involved at church. But if you've messed up, if you wobble in your faith, well, perhaps the sidelines are best for you. But that is not how the Bible teaches us, is it? For the Lord is the one who uses people who are weak and frail, who make bad decisions, who mess up. What did Jesus say in Mark 2? I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And I wonder if there are some here tonight, uh, today in fact, who uh, need to hear this particularly. Maybe we feel crippled by a particular decision we made in the past. Maybe we feel that uh, we have somehow missed out on God being able to use us because we've just been too sinful. Perhaps we know that our faith is a faith that wobbles under pressure, that we have good and bad days, and we think, well, God couldn't use me, I'm just not stable enough. And yet, 1 Samuel 27 shows us that God uses all kinds of people, not just the strong, but the weak and the frail. I guess most of us know what it's like to live under pressure in one way or another. Pressure tests us, it reveals our hearts. And yet, when pressure comes on, what do our hearts show us? 1 Samuel 27 points us forward to uh, the one true king, the only one who has remained truly steadfast and faithful in that moment of extreme testing, the one who cares for his people. And as I finish, just one final thought for all of us to ponder, perhaps throughout the rest of today. We will experience pressure, in this life, there will be moments when we feel utterly out of our depth. There may be moments when it feels almost as if going to Gath and the Philistines is a better option than sticking by God's promises. But here's the question. When we understand afresh the leader we have, the Christ who looks after us and he cares for us, the one who is willing to die in our place, the question is this, why wouldn't we want to trust in that kind of leader? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our King and Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that under the most extreme pressure, his heart was revealed and we saw the sheer magnitude of his love and his faithfulness and his commitment to the salvation of your people. Father, we thank you for him. Father, please, would you help us to be people who believe in his protection and in his love, that even though we feel the heat and the pressure, even though we wobble, we will look to him and find protection. In Jesus' name. Amen.